Well, we're wrapping up this morning our series that we've called Invisible War. We're calling it today The Final Victory. Sermon notes, if you want those, are at the information desk afterward. You can pick those up. You know, one of the most commonly used words in everyday talk, I'm sure you hear this every day, is the word hell. Uh, Sometimes it's used in the form of a request for someone else, uh, encouraging them to go there, okay? Uh, Sometimes it's used to add emphasis to our yes, uh, sort of an adjective, uh, or no. And then I've even seen it as label on some uh, forms of hot sauce. Uh, There's one called habanero from hell. I don't know if you ever, has anyone here ever had habanero from hell? Okay, they're they're probably not here, okay? (laughs) All right, so anyway. I do see someone out here that makes some hot sauce, though, and I've, I've tasted that, and it does get pretty warm, so not maybe that warm. Uh, but, you know, one place that we might think we would hear that word a little more frequently than we do is in church, but we don't really talk about hell very much in church, and I think one of the reasons for that is that churches, and I know preachers, don't want to be characterized as these angry abusive, you know, condemning people that enjoy talking about hell. And there are churches like that, aren't there? We don't want to be one of those. And so maybe that's why we overreact and we just don't talk about hell very much. But can we afford to forget about hell, just to ignore it? Well, I want to say emphatically, no, okay? And this morning... For just a few minutes, we're going to talk about hell because Jesus talked about it. Now, in this series on invisible war, we've looked at Jesus' teaching about the real existence of the invisible terrorist who he called Satan, who stands behind all of the evil in our world. Jesus called him the prince of this world, who leads an organized invisible force of evil spiritual beings, they are real personalities, invisible, that incite evil in the world, enticing human beings with deception and with self-destructive ideas. Now, I want to state this too because you may be here today and, and really say, I don't believe there is such a place as hell. Well, I rest, the, I rest my case, Christianity rests its case, upon Jesus Christ, whom millions and millions and millions of people consider to be the most credible, most trustworthy, most insightful person who ever lived on this planet. And Jesus talked about hell. You know, the very first battle in the invisible war took place with the parents of us all when Satan approached them way back in the Garden of Eden uh, our parents, and, and he approached them to, to entice them away from God, onto a path where they no longer lived for God. They rejected God. And this path of walking away from God has led humanity to three outcomes, the first two of which are in this present life, and the one lies way off in the future. Let's take a look at those first 
at the two in the present, present life, where this path away from God has led us. It's led us into sin. Let me define sin real simply. Sin is when I do something that breaks God's boundaries and hurts someone else. That's the, that's the perpetrator side of sin. And then this path away from God has also led us to a second outcome. And that's to sorrow. Now sorrow, we can define it this way. Sorrow is when someone else breaks God's boundaries and hurts me. That's the victim side, the, the wounded victim side of sin. And so what's happened is there has been set in motion a vicious sin-sorrow cycle that has dominated human history. It has dominated and torn apart human relationships. It's this cycle back and forth of sinning against and then being sinned against, of hurting someone and then being hurt in return by someone. And it, it's just a vicious, vicious cycle. And if you really stop and think about it, I guess you could really call it a spiritual insanity because we keep right on feeding this cycle. We've fed it into the 21st century. We're feeding it more than we've ever fed this cycle. In the, you, you look around the world. It gets worse and worse. Why? Because instead of repenting of our sins, instead of dealing with them, we deny them. Instead of finding healing for our wounds, what do we do? We, we bury them so they become these smoldering fires of anger and bitterness deep inside that we use to keep the cycle going by lashing out and hurting people all the more. Everybody gets destroyed. Everybody gets scarred. And there are people who have held on to their sins and their bitter sorrows all of their lives, have never resolved them, never sought reconciliation. And it is this escalating, unending cycle of sin and sorrow that leads to this third outcome on the path away from God. It's this third outcome that is the ultimate outcome. It's the one that lies way out in the future. It leads to hell. Now, Jesus not only talked about hell, but, and you may never have even thought about this before, and maybe this is going to be like a, a shocking statement, but Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, with His Father, eternal God, Jesus created hell. He created it. Why would, why would Jesus create a place like hell? For the very same reason that the Atlanta Center for Disease Control isolates infectious diseases. Because sin is the disease that infects and destroys the goodness and the justice and the beauty and the relationships of God's creation. So out of love for the good, out of love for justice, God created hell as the place where Evil will be finally isolated and contained. It will no longer corrupt His creation. That will be the final victory over evil. 
So in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, Jesus stated very clearly, he stated these words, that hell was created for the devil and his angels. That's why hell was created, for this this arch-perpetrator of evil that has dragged the whole world into sin. Sin makes hell a necessity. Now, the great philosopher, Immanuel Kant, he saw the very same thing. In fact, he wrote perhaps his second greatest book to make this point. It's called The The Critique of Practical Reason. And his whole premise in that book, and his is a book that's still studied down to this day, is that because there is this universal demand from human beings that there be justice. Don't you hear that cry of justice in our society right now? People want justice. They they don't want things to be unfair. That's a universal desire. What Kant said was, that points to the fact that human beings recognize universally that they are accountable to some high moral law. We are accountable to be just. He, he, He... reasoned from that, that there is God. God is a moral judge. And he also said, if we look around our world, that justice, or at least full justice, ever rarely gets served in this world. I want you to think about the 9-11 victims for just a second. If we could interview all of those families that lost their loved ones, do you think any one of them would say, yes, Justice has been fully satisfied, fully taken care of my grief and my loss. Absolutely not. Human justice never comes close to satisfying this demand that we all have in our hearts that there be true and total justice. I think Immanuel Kant, I think his reasoning falls right in line when we say that God created hell because of his demand for justice. He is a good God. He could not be a loving God if he weren't a good God. A loving loving God demands justice. Hell is a necessity to isolate evil. Now, this is where we have to face head-on something else that Jesus taught us about hell. And this is the hard part. This is really hard. If you go right back to that same verse from which I quoted a few moments ago in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, here's the full statement Jesus made there. Then he says, Then he, that is God, I'll identify a little bit more specifically who that is in a moment. Then he will say to those on his left, This is the day of judgment. Depart from me, you who are cursed into the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So, tragically, on the day of judgment, there will be many human beings who are consigned by God into that same place of isolation where Satan and his fallen angels have been thrown. The Apostle John describes, gives a little more description of this ultimate day in court at the end of history in Revelation chapter 20. 
verses 11, 12, 15. Let me just read a couple excerpts there. Here's what John, this is what he was shown about that day. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Now, who is seated on that throne of judgment at the end of history? If you take a look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, it begins this way. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, the Son of Man is is the name Jesus took to himself. When the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, comes in his glory and all of his angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. So the same Jesus that died on the cross to spare any human being from ever ending up in hell is the same Jesus Christ who's going to be seated on that throne at the end of history to mete out justice. And if evil has not been resolved in a human heart, has never come for forgiveness, has never taken the cure, the remedy that Jesus provided on the cross, the sad and tragic truth is that that person becomes part of that eternal isolation and banishment from the presence of God. I heard someone say just recently that they would rather have Jesus talk to us about hell than anybody else because he's the one that loves us all more than anybody else and because he is the one who came into our world for the very purpose to do everything he as God could ever do so that no human being ever, up, ever ends up being eternally lost. And that brings us to our final point here this morning. And I'm going to elaborate this for just a little bit. Jesus came into the world to rescue us from this sin-sorrow cycle. How did he do that? How was he qualified to do that? Well, first of all, he was God. Secondly, he was totally sinless. Jesus was not trapped inside of this sin-sorrow cycle that the rest of the human family is. And yet he stepped into the human family. But because he was sinless, Jesus could take our sins upon himself, take the blame for all of our sins as if he himself had committed them, and then offer himself as the sacrifice for you and me so that a way of forgiveness and a way that this penalty of sin could be totally lifted off our shoulders could be provided to every human being. Now, I also want to say this. Jesus did experience the sin-sorrow cycle. He, he, he experienced the, the victim side of that. He never experienced the perpetrator side because he didn't commit sin. But he experienced the, victim, the victimization side of being sinned against, of being abused, of being mistreated more than any other human being that's ever lived on the planet. Jesus is the most abused human being who ever lived. And that all culminated in the injustice of the cross. A sinless person, guilty of nothing, crucified. So 
how did Jesus rescue us from, from this sin-sorrow cycle? Isaiah chapter 53 tells us what he did on the cross. First of all, 53 verse, verse number 4 says this, Surely he, that is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. I want you to stop and think about that for a second. Maybe you could think for just a moment about what is the worst wound? What is the worst wound that's ever been inflicted on your life? What, what, what one went the deepest? What, what wound in, in your life left you completely numb inside? Jesus took that wound. He took it with him to the cross. He carried your sorrow. He carried every ounce of grief attached to that sorrow. He carried your wounds so that we could be healed. And then it also says this in chapter Isaiah 53, verse 5a. It says, he was pierced. That's talking about those nails. Talking about the spear that went into his side. He was pierced for our transgressions. That's the perpetration side. That's, that's the side of us that does the sinning. Think for a moment about this. What is the worst, very worst sin that you would say you've ever committed in your life? The one, the one thing you feel most ashamed about. Hey, I just want, I want to tell you, and this is good news. <laughs> Jesus took that sin and all the shame that goes with it. He took it to the cross for you so that you could be forgiven and set free from that shame. This is how the Apostle Peter says that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He says, Jesus committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him as he hung on the cross, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to God, who judges righteously. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness, live for what is right and good. By his wounds, you, your wounds have been healed. So, let's just sort of put that, all that into a statement to try to, to grasp that for just a second. Here it is. Jesus died... So we could find forgiveness of our sins, the things we do to hurt other people, we could be forgiven of that. And he died so that we can find healing from the wounds we've received and an option to bitterness. Because bitterness is the fuel that feeds this sin-sorrow cycle and keeps it running so that instead 
we could by his power, what he did at the cross, break that sin-sorrow cycle. We would be able to come to a place where we can forgive those who have sinned against us and who knows, maybe even up, open up that door of reconciliation. Isn't reconciliation a rare commodity in this world? But I'll tell you what, by the power of the cross, reconciliation is something that the Lord wants to see demonstrated with, among his people, where wounded hearts that have been torn apart from each other can be healed and even reconciled. And this is why Paul in the book of Ephesians said this is how God's grace becomes a shining testimony to this whole broken world because they see among God's people something the world never, never sees very much. And now this is not, I'm not talking here about some sort of cheap forgiveness that just brushes off the damage and the horror of the violence or injustice that has been done to you. When Jesus hung in that cross, he felt all the pain. He wasn't minimizing the pain. He wasn't minimizing the, the horror of that sin and that abuse. And he doesn't minimize the horror or the sin of the abuse that you may have experienced in your life either. He doesn't want you to pretend, oh, hey, that, that was nothing. That's okay. I'm just going to, eh, I'll just forgive that person. Hey, that's not the way forgiveness works. Forgiveness is hard work. And I'll tell you what, I think it's only by the power of Christ that we can come to a place in the process of working through pain to come to a place of forgiveness. But, you know, what's the only option to forgiveness? The only option is I'm going to keep feeding this, this sin-sorrow cycle because I can't get free of my bitterness. Here's what I believe. If anyone would have ever been justified out of bitterness to say the words, go to hell, it would have been Jesus for what was done to him. But he overcame that. He, he overcame that so that he could come into your life and mine and help us overcome that bitterness too. I believe Jesus would have us come to the place where we are able to do what he did for his abusers on the cross. What did Jesus do? He looked up to heaven and he said, Father, 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 forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're blind in their rage. They don't know what they're doing. They're insane in sin. And sin is insanity. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says this, that, that Jesus rescued us from the kingdom of darkness where the sin-sorrow cycle, it, it runs rampant. That's the kingdom of darkness. But he, he rescued us from that kingdom and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. So I'm just going to wrap this up this morning by asking four questions that I believe require a choice from all of us. Here's the first one. If you've been listening to this morning and you have never yet in your life come to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, 
your question is, do you want to do that? If you do, Jesus is here, and he's calling you to himself. Uh, if, you, if you come to Christ repentantly and say, Lord, I've been a perpetrator of sin. I've sinned flat out. I know it. I'm not hiding it. Forgive me. I'll tell you what. It's the biggest, biggest decision you'll ever make because Jesus Christ will wash your sins away. He will forgive you, wipe the slate clean, give you a brand new start. And on top of that, he will come into your life and share with you the power of his life, the power that enabled him to begin breaking, to, to break free of all the damage that sin has done. Secondly, second question is this. Will you replace bitterness with forgiveness? Let me ask you to think about this for a second. Who do you, most, who do you have most reason to hate in this world? Is there any person's face that comes to mind? Who would you have most reason to just hate? I want to ask you this question. I want to tell you, I ask this question very gently. I really do. Are you going to continue to hold on to that hatred and that bitterness toward that person? How long are you going to continue to do that? Now, that you would have feelings of hate, I'm not, no, I'm, I'm not diminishing that. Feelings of anger. But what direction is all that emotion going to go, is what I'm asking. Are you going to keep holding on to that and nursing that? Or, with Christ's strength and with Christ's people around you, will you continue working toward a place where you desire and that you even begin to pray for that person who hurt you to be convicted of their sin. Perhaps come to a place where they begin, to, where they turn their life over to God. For, and even ask his repentance for what they did to you. Can, you. can you pray for that person? I know that's not an easy one. But you'll find Christ's strength if you, take, if you make that decision to help you. And you'll find freedom. Number three... Will you receive forgiveness from Jesus? Okay, what if you're the person who is so deeply hated this morning for what you did to somebody else? What if you're that person? Well, the question for you is, are you going to continue to live the rest of your life loathing yourself, loathing the very thoughts of yourself, loathing yourself when you look at yourself in the mirror, hating yourself for what you did. That's shame. You're going to keep punishing yourself over and over and over again. Or are you going to come to that Jesus who said he died on the cross taking the blame for that loathsome sin that you committed and accept his genuine forgiveness. 
doesn't mean you minimize the, what you did. No. But genuine, genuine repentance never minimizes what we've sin, how, our, how deep our sins have been. But if we come with genuine repentant heart, then God will genuinely forgive. Where, where sin goes deep, book of Romans, sin goes deep, God's grace goes deeper. Number four, where are you going to take your stand this morning? Are you going to keep standing in that sin-sorrow cycle with the rest of the world? Or are you going to take your stand with that family of people that have gathered around the cross and by the power of that cross have stepped out of the sin-sorrow cycle and are learning how to forgive like Jesus forgave and, and are bringing their wounds to Him to be completely healed so that bitterness, bitterness, that issue is resolved. And my prayer is that each one of us take our stand with that company of people that cling to the cross because that is the only hope that this sins, sorrow, cycling world, it's the only hope that any of us have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful this morning for the gift of your Son, what he did for us on that cross, what he did for the world so that evil in our lives both the perpetration side and the victim side, evil can be healed and forgiven. And Lord, we can, be, we can return to the path that goes on into your eternal presence and get off of that path that leads to the isolation of hell. I pray that no person in this room will want to remain on that path Heavenly Father, I pray that right now your Holy Spirit will just touch our hearts, speak to our hearts. If, if there are individuals here, Lord, that are struggling with this whole issue of faith, I pray, Father, that you would reveal the, the substantiveness, the reality of this truth that Jesus shares with us. And Lord, I pray that we all will come to you with wherever we're at, bring our sins, bring our wounds, come to you, the remedy, the cure. And now, Lord, as we go into this water baptism time where we celebrate several who have made that decision to come to Christ and to, and to begin to live in, to begin their, live their lives in the power that He gives, I pray, Lord, you'll just let the joy of this celebration fill this room, Lord. We thank you that we have new life in Jesus Christ. And we give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.